I think that what we're showing and demonstrating through this big breakthrough is that uh, bipartisanship is possible. Democratic Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema helped negotiate the framework for a trillion dollar infrastructure deal. 21 senators have signed on to it, 10 Democrats and 11 Republicans. President Joe Biden has also endorsed the tentative framework, which she helped clinch as a lead negotiator. Cinema wants the deal she helped broker to stand as a testament to her centrist collaborative approach to tackling the nation's big issues in an effort to get things done, as she likes to say. Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national reporter for the Republic. Today, we're breaking down how Cinema has positioned herself in the Senate to lead legislation on all kinds of fronts, from immigration to the federal minimum wage debate. We're speaking with Sarah Binder. She's a professor of political science at George Washington University. She studies the 100-member Senate that is evenly divided and where Cinema has established herself as a centrist, willing to work with Republicans or Democrats on issues big and small. First, I want to take you back to a recent press availability that Cinema had with members of Arizona's press corps. I got to ask her how she hopes to use this momentum on infrastructure to make meaningful breakthroughs on other issues like immigration or healthcare, election integrity. Here's what she had to say. You know, the old adage of success begets success, I think is really true in, in the setting of, you know, the Congress and the, and the legislative work that we do. Um, showing this broad bipartisan support, as you all know, as of last week, we had 21 senators 10 Democrats and 11 Republicans. And that was before we'd even finished negotiating the framework with the White House. So we fully anticipate those numbers to to grow as we begin to talk about this with our colleagues and earn support. Um, So I think that what we're showing and demonstrating through this big breakthrough is that uh, bipartisanship is possible. We can achieve good outcomes that actually meet the needs of our country. And it does, yeah, it does take a lot of time. It takes a lot of hard work. You know, Senator Portman and I started talking about this months ago, and we just kind of been working quietly and diligently um, to grow the support um, amongst our caucus and, and of course, with, with the White House. But this level of success shows that if you're willing to put in the time and the effort, that good people who care about the country, even if they have some different ideas of what the solution should look like, can sit down together and find a compromise. Not only is she working with Ohio Republican Senator Rob Portman on this infrastructure package, she also is working closely with Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney on the federal minimum wage front. She also has introduced immigration legislation with Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas. So these are just three examples of bipartisan efforts that I'm uh, deeply, deeply invested in. And again, what they show is that when people see that bipartisanship is possible, they want to join and be a part of these groups. And I think you'll see more of that as time moves on in the next couple months. While she may have helped reach a breakthrough on an infrastructure deal, many Democrats still view cinema as naive about working cooperatively with Republicans. 
Some fear she's effectively scuttling the Biden agenda. So the question at hand is, can cinema's approach to bipartisan legislating really help deliver wins and not just on infrastructure? Here to help answer that is Sarah Binder, a professor of political science at George Washington University. Professor Sarah Binder, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Sarah, you study the House and the Senate. Um, Senator Sinema talks a lot about the need for more bipartisanship and collaboration. She recently has been pointing to the infrastructure deal that she has helped broker as a sign of what is possible in a very deeply divided Washington. Do you think that there is political space for tackling other issues with this sort of approach? I mean, it seems to me that infrastructure sort of always seems like low-hanging fruit. You know, it, it was that in the Trump administration. What about more divisive issues like immigration reform, increasing the minimum wage, for example? Well, there's always, I think, an appetite, certainly amongst what we think of as centrists from the Democratic and the Republican side, definitely in the Senate, much less so in the House. But there's definitely an appetite for trying to resolve these big issues of the day. Um, I think to some extent, uh, the infrastructure bill and the issue has turned out to be a little more controversial than you would think roads and bridges uh, would be. So it's almost as if it's, um, I don't know if it's as hard as, but the other issue that Senator Sinema has been working on is immigration reform. And she's taken, I think I would characterize it, well, I don't want to call it the low-hanging fruit of immigration reform, but they're sort of tacking at her and uh, Republican Senator John Cornyn sort of bit by bit. Uh, sort of started with border security uh, and, bo- and sort of um, how are we going to handle the influx of refugees and families uh, and folks coming to petition for asylum. So maybe that's the issue here. The, the big, broad issues, controversial issues, the polarizing issues, it's really hard to get traction on. Break things down? I think Senator Sinema is trying to show that there is space to work on it, whether it works. I think uh, jury's still out on on all of that. The senator is sort of having this breakthrough moment on the infrastructure deal. While she's still relatively new to the upper chamber, uh, she's only been in the Senate for two years, a little more than that now. Uh, And she's uh, one of the lead negotiators on this deal that has really sort of taken on outsized importance for the Biden administration. How did she ascend to this role so quickly? Well, I think it's it's a good question because we have this notion of sort of the longer serving members and senators being the ones who get to cut the deals. In reality, the the we've seen a lot of turnover, certainly in the House, but but also in the Senate. So I I caught Senator Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia today, um, said, you know, I've been here 10 years, uh, as if this was supposed to be this really long time. But you can imagine his uh, Bob Byrd, Robert Byrd, Senator from West Virginia, who had a seat before, 10 years, I mean, drop, drop in a bucket. <laughs> so in that sense, there's openings here for someone like Cinema or really any other senator, if they wanted to, <laughs> to, to get in the game. Um, it's just it just seems that senators, in, in part, 
as you started off, right? This is just a very polarized time and not everybody wants to be or have the incentive to buck the leadership uh, and to kind of do the hard work, especially because you don't know that the leader is right for all she knows. Um, Senator McConnell from the Republicans, for all you know, he's going to kill the deal, uh, even though Republicans, obviously, some of them want to work at a deal. I think the senator's reputation and brand is pretty well formed and well established for those of us here in Arizona who have watched her from her um, days at the state legislature, then the House of Representatives, and now the Senate. What was the impression of who she would be when she got to Washington versus what it is now? Well, it's a good question. So for for the folks who like study Congress and follow the ins and the outs and everything, you I think she was noticeable when she was serving in the House, and in part because she didn't really conform to expectations Expectations. Uh, well, here's a Democrat. She was a social worker, right? All these stereotypes we might have in our in our mind about her. But she struck out a kind of, you know, there aren't a lot of real centrists, but she struck out a kind of moderate stance in the House. And lo and behold, <laughs> there she is again uh, in the Senate. Um, y- you know, I think for people who don't follow Congress very carefully, I think what they've probably noticed was the changing hair color and the outfits and a very kind of superficial uh, impression that, you know, I've, I've never met the senator, but she doesn't seem to mind what people, uh, what people think of that. And so she cuts her own, uh, what's, what's the right phrase? She cuts her own uh, mark through, through the Senate for sure. It, 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 I think it's good to shake those old guys up. So. <laughs> so she finds herself in the middle of, uh, the arena, as it were, uh, these days. Um, compare her, though, to others who are similarly sort of at the center of attention, uh, especially on the Democratic side. Uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who you mentioned earlier, John Tester of Montana. Um, they inhabit pretty conservative states. Um, is Kirsten Cinema um, more ideologically conservative than them? Is she just politically more cautious? How do you put her in, in that universe of, uh, of senators? So that's a good question. And, and so when we try to like figure out how conservative or moderate or liberal senators are, we often just go straight to their voting records. And if you look at her voting record, yeah, it's somewhat moderate, but it's, but it doesn't really look quite uh, like Tester and Manchin, it's closer to Manchin for sure. But the other way we try to make sense of these senators and House members is to see, well, how well uh, did the National Party do in her state? So and here we just like, how well did Trump do in 2020 uh, in Tester's Montana or Manchin's West Virginia or Cinema's Arizona? And, and obviously they're like in leagues apart from each other. Right. With Manchin, you know, 40. I think Trump must have won about 70 percent of the vote. Tester, probably close to that. Uh, he uh, Trump probably won about. 60, 70, probably close to 70% of the vote in Montana as well. But Arizona, we know that Biden won. And I think that's part of what uh, makes uh, people scratch their heads uh, in Washington when they try to figure out um, where is she coming from? Uh, I think there's this notion people ask, well, why doesn't she look like all the other Democratic senators? Why doesn't she look like what we think Mark Kelly looks like, the other Democratic senator from Arizona? But I don't know. Um, You look at the Obviously, the coverage you folks uh, do in Arizona, and I always see her referred to as a border state, uh, border state senator. And 
You know, you don't see that when people write about her in Washington. We think of her as, you know, we put the Democrat, the big D next to her. And, you know, place matters, where you're from matters, interests matter, constituencies, pressures. And I imagine being the Arizona senator, you don't might not have liberty in early in your career to, um, to strike out, to, to look more liberal, even if she wanted to be that, uh, which, of course, I don't know. All right. So little detour here on cinema's legislative approach. Uh, a, a lot of Democrats like to point out that our other Democratic senator, Mark Kelly, he's not holding up Biden's agenda by, you know, refusing to abolish the legislative filibuster. You know, he's he's sort of a good Democrat um, by their measure. Is is that a fair sort of assessment of him as as you see it? So I, I think that's my sense so far, although it's always a little hard to kind of nail down senators. And I think there's certainly the new ones and even some of the older ones who've been there, you know, they don't really need to announce squarely whether they're for filibuster reform or or against it. And, and in part because Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin have, are carrying the flagpole in defense of the filibuster. So... I think they all assume it's the vote's not going to come this Congress, and in that case, well, you know, why really stick out a, a clear, a clear position? And senators' positions change. Um, you know, we we have this notion they like come to Washington with like this very crystal clear set of what we call preferences or views, but you know, those views develop, they change, it depends. So I'm, I'm not surprised. Uh, she, she looks a little different in that I can't quite nail down um, Mark Kelly from the things he said. Um, but it certainly takes some guts to plant a flag and say, in spite of all this pressure and these incredibly partisan times, uh, to tell your party, I'm not going to vote that way. You have uh, studied Congress for some time. Uh, these feel like uh, really uh, intensely partisan times to, you know, us. And it, it seems like we have reached a point where it's hard for either side to, you know, really kind of reach across the aisle that it, it's not uh, rewarded. The incentives just don't seem to be there. Is that a an accurate sense? Like historically, are we in just a really different period? And, and how do we find ourselves out of this uh, as a nation to a point where uh, collaboration and bipartisanship is is rewarded, incentivized, uh, encouraged, whatever we want to say. So it's it's a great question, and it's certainly far more partisan in Washington and Congress today than it was 30, 40 years ago. I mean, we've had times historically, end of the late 19th century, which were probably just as intensely partisan as they are today. But, but as you said, in today's Washington, the incentives to reach across the aisle, uh, they're few and far, be far between. In, in, just look at kind of the electoral map. Democratic states tend to elect Democratic senators and, and vice versa. And so there aren't a lot of cross-pressure like a, a, a Susan Collins uh, from uh, a Maine, so a Republican that's from a state where Biden won. There just aren't a lot of those senators. And so the, the reinforcement you get from home, typically, maybe not Senator Sinema, but the reinforcement you feel is to pull you closer to your, to your party. Um, just another thing is to think is that if, how do you break out of this? We used to say, 
a good, strong electoral wind, um, unified party control that lasts maybe longer than two years, that that's really what you need. You a big party like you had in 2009. But in reality, right, the larger these parties get, the more diverse they are. And so it's harder for them to, to act. I think the real issue here is you you need, well, this sounds a little uh, anti-democratic. Uh, you need to like close off some spaces for lawmakers, like the bipartisan deal on infrastructure, if it works, right? You need some space where people can hash out the issues and make a sort of a global agreement, right? As we say, nothing's agreed to until everything's agreed to. And in order to make those deals, you have to know what the other side wants, and I think that's part of the problem here, that Washington is so polarized. Um, you, if, to go in a room and give the other side their most preferred, you know, let's say you want border security and let's say you want a path to citizenship for undocumented uh, people here in the U.S., like you don't know what to give the other side if you don't even know who they are. And I think that's in part what's kind of so different about that uh, infrastructure gang. They spent a lot of time together. Um but there aren't a lot of senators willing to invest that type of time. And absent that, it's really hard to kind of reach solutions in a pretty partisan place. So while they were spending all that time in uh, closed doors meetings with senators and White House officials, um, activists, progressive groups were really, you know, Amping up the pressure here in Arizona on the sen- uh, on the senator to change her mind on the legislative filibuster. We've had people arrested. We have ad campaigns. It seems uh, launching almost daily. Um, so the legislative filibuster really sort of seems to be at the heart of all of this hand wringing um, over cinema. And cinema and mansion clearly have taken a lot of hits. Are getting blamed mostly for sort of clinging to this tradition that no longer makes sense in a hyperpartisan Washington. But there seem to be other Democrats who also have misgivings about doing away with this filibuster. Do you think that there is a deliberate effort by Manchin and Cinema to take all of the heat to um, sort of divert attention away from from all these other folks? Is there a strategy here by these two? So that's such a great question. I mean, it certainly comes naturally to Joe Manchin, right, from a hardcore red state um, where he sees himself as the inheritor of Senator Robert Byrd, who he himself often wanted to curtail the filibuster, but his reputation is the great defender of the filibuster. And so it works for Joe Manchin's home style. The, the position and the reputation he's kind of staked out for himself of bipartisanship. And so I don't think there's, he doesn't need any extra strategy to say, I'm going to take the heat for everybody. I mean, that seems to be what he believes and what works for him uh, back home in, in West Virginia. Cinema, I, I, I really can't, I can't tell. I mean, I, she seems to truly uh, have stamped out this position and this home style, really, of saying, look, I'm a problem solver. I'm a reach across the aisles. And if that's how you present yourself, then defending the filibuster in face of everything um, fits. It works. And so I think it has the byproduct of helping out 
um, Democratic senators who aren't at liberty and don't want to face that pressure back home. Does it help in some way, try, you know, sort of cement, I think, what she would want people to think of her um, in terms of being a maverick or being independent, or does it do something else? Well, it certainly, it could broaden, or let's put it this way, if she if she were to lose Democrats' vote, although that's kind of hard to see, but depends on who she'd run against, right? If it were to cost her Democratic votes, well, it might gain her some Republican votes or independent votes in Arizona. So, and it's it's not like uh, Arizona was a landslide for <laughs> Joe Biden. You guys obviously know uh, the, the politics uh, back home there then I don't. Um, but my sense is there's probably, we should think of it as purple, uh, not as deep blue. And so in that sense, it's, it's in that particular sense, it's smart electoral politics, whether it costs her in the primary or the general election, to be seen. Sarah, let's presume that filibuster was off the table for a moment. Um is there any serious support for trying to take up other meaningful legislation on any of the big issues uh, that that have been outlined either by the president or by uh, the parties more broadly? Um, are, are both sides simply too invested in legislative stalemate right now? Is, is the legislative window already closing uh, rapidly on us? Well, it's closing very, very Quickly, There does seem to be a few other mini gains out there. Um, the work on police reform, although that group, bipartisan group, seems to be struggling. Um, Senator Sinema's work with Cornyn, uh, although that's kind of a small piece of the pie, but whether that finds room. The bigger problem here is we're in uh, June, uh, the summer of 2021 already, um, Lawmakers don't often, and party leaders don't like to do very partisan things during an election year. They have big spending bills coming up. They have to raise the debt limit. They've got this promise of a mammoth reconciliation bill and a mammoth uh, infrastructure um, roads and bridges deal. That's going to take up a lot of time. And the closer and closer you get to that election, it just zaps up a lot of incentive to do anything really, really tough. So, and... uh, just to keep in mind, many of those Biden priorities are wrapped up or will be wrapped up if they succeed in this huge reconciliation bill that's supposed to tackle social infrastructure as well as the um, as more narrow um, physical infrastructure bills, right? Climate, child poverty, like there's a, there's a lot that can be done in those bills. And so in that sense, advance could advance Biden's agenda, even though it leaves on the table these lingering issues. Right. Police reform, immigration, uh, and so forth. So you kind of just addressed this a bit earlier, um, but I'm curious to about digging in a little bit deeper on this. Perhaps more than most right now, Arizona seems to be politically evolving. Uh, does this centrist profile make cinema unbeatable? Uh, for Republicans in 2024, do you think? Do you see any sort of scenario in which Democrats sort of force her to the left in a primary um, using her um, decision to, for example, skip 
the vote on the January 6th commission, her thumbs down on the $15 minimum wage um, effort as part of the COVID relief package, and um, perhaps any other, you know, um, uh, issue out there like infrastructure where they say it doesn't, doesn't go far enough. I mean, do you see any scenario where progressives win in a state like Arizona against someone like Kirsten Cinema? Well, I guess I think of it this way, which is 2024 is in political time. It's really far away. Uh, and so you don't really know what the landscape of the issues, what will happen, what will pass between now and then. But it's just to keep in mind, it's, it's hard to knock off a sitting incumbent um, senator. So that would be a really, I would think, a really high hurdle for a progressive challenger. Uh, within uh, to knock her off in a in a, in a primary um, way into right we're talking three years uh, at least uh, away. Okay, so that was one speculative question. I'll call for another. Um, she seems to be um, a, the key person in the Senate right now, but would she have a similar role the next time Republicans control the Senate uh, by a relatively thin margin? In other words, does she matter because she's a Democrat when her party runs the chamber, or does she matter because ideologically that's where the center of the Senate is? Well, I think the, the thing in the Senate is because of the rules of the game that require basically 60 votes to get much done, and we have really small majority parties, cinema can be pretty influential in the minority, oh, in the minority party. Uh, one doesn't need to be in the majority to kind of make a difference in the Senate. And, and if I have this right, this is her first um service in the majority, right, even from when she was in the House. And she's managed to kind of stake out a reputation and then build on it in this Congress, at least so far. Um, again, keeping in mind, we don't really know. We can anticipate possibly some big infrastructure bills. We don't really know uh, how things are going to come down the pike. Ron, and I think it's so interesting that uh, Senator Cinema has sort of sucked all the oxygen out of the out of the room here in Arizona, over in Washington, yet we have another election of another senator next year with Mark Kelly. What are your impressions of him and um, how he is approaching um, legislating there in Washington? He's only been there for six months. Six months yet, I think by most measures, he's really sort of experienced what some senators might only get to experience in one full term, right? From impeachment to emergency <laughs> reconciliation packages um, to once in a lifetime, potentially infrastructure deals. Do you have a sense of, of, of him and what his prospects for 2022 may be? Sure. So the one image I have in my head of Senator Kelly this year was he was out home in Arizona and he was giving an injection of the COVID vaccine. And that was, and I just thought to myself, I took a screenshot, I stuck it in my file. I was like, that's going up when I teach Congress in the fall, when we talk about like home style, reputation, right? Here he is. He's the astronaut come home and he's, he's still helping people. I mean, so it, he has cut a very low profile 
On the one hand, it's not that unusual, at least historically, for first-term senators. And so there's certainly many people would cut them slack for that. But that's also sort of an old model of, um, of, of Washington, right? Senators come, they, they're not terribly shy. There's no apprenticeship period anymore. <laughs> anymore. You just hit the ground running. So I, I am at, here's my hunch is not being the limelight and the flashpoint is probably good uh, for Senator Kelly, uh, who needs to keep the base, keep them happy, uh, raise money, uh, and deter anybody good from running, <laughs> running against him uh, come, uh, come next year. Very good. Well, Sarah Bender, thank you for sharing the spotlight with us on The Gaggle. <laughs> thank you for your time and sharing your thoughts. Sure. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for today, Gaggle listeners. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend or two. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Maritza Dominguez. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Also, be sure to check out Valley 101, an Arizona Republic and azcentral.com podcast that answers all of your questions about the Valley. From silly to serious, you ask the questions and we find the answers. For The Gaggle, I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez. We'll see you next week.